News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been talking about the heat wave this morning that is coming. It will peak Thursday, Friday, so start tomorrow. Essentially more high temperatures into the 30s that we can expect. I've been asking people how they're going to deal with it. Well, James wrote me to say, regarding what I'm doing differently with the past heat wave or this one coming up this week, James says, I have three fans going, one small, two stand size. I live in a studio apartment with one window, so I open my door to let the cool air from our fan in our apartment hallway in. I shut my blinds and curtains. That's all I can do, James said, and do my best to stay cool, drink lots of water, and endure it. James, I'm with you on that one. Let's find out what our Raji Sohal does to cope with all this. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. I'm I'm focused on keeping the heat out. I think that the last heat wave caught me by surprise. I didn't know it could be so intense. There were several days where we couldn't think about anything else. Like could not think about, could not think really. It was just about how hot it was. And part of the reason we actually moved back to Vancouver, because I'm a Vancouver kid. I grew up in Surrey, but I, I lived elsewhere in adulthood. And then um, part of the big part of the reason we came back was because of the weather. We just love Vancouver weather so much. And having been in Montreal and Los Angeles, uh, the Vancouver weather appealed to me so much. And now I'm thinking, hmm, what I guess I, I better get back into So yeah, it was you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So you brought this here when you moved here. So Raji moves back and then the weather changes. I see what's happening here. So I'm doing what you're doing as well. And it just seemed anathema in the beginning, but now it's, you know, keep the blinds closed, keep everything closed to try to keep the heat out. And it works. It works. You know what we had to do? Because we have some skylights in our house. Oh. And it felt like we were actually on fire when we had those hot days. Yeah. So we had to cover them. And it's not pretty, Simmy, and it's not a permanent solution. (laughs) We'll have to come up with something else soon, I'm sure. But we blocked it with cardboard and it's so effective i swear it dropped the temperature by several degrees uh in the house wow and so yeah it's so unattractive <laughs> but you know what <laughs> at that point those on instagram <laughs> <laughs> at that point whatever works right oh, like yeah. whatever works you're gonna have to put like blinds on your skylight so that you can do that in the future without having to use i'm sure there's that's a thing somewhere yeah, well, I looked into it, and there are like kind of shutters that you can use to cover them. What our neighbor, our next door neighbor, who has the same same exact place as us, identical, uh, what they've done is actually install like eaves over the windows oh. that are are fairly long, and they're really effective at creating shade just over the window. So you don't, in addition to putting you know your blinds down, whatever, you're just not getting that heat right on the window itself, like the glass. That makes a big and difference. It makes a really big difference. So we're thinking about these things for next summer. Actually, I'm also thinking about vacationing next summer. Like I really wanted to go to the Okanagan this summer, as you know, and we had to cancel the plans because of the wildfires. And I'm thinking, well, next year, I guess I'll go like out of season. I'll go off season in order to avoid extreme heat or wildfires. It's and so that unpredictable thing. though. It is, that's so the thing, right? So the last two years, it was okay. Uh, the two years before that were horrible. And mm-hmm. this year has been horrible. It's just, you don't know anymore. Yeah, yeah. You know, we have found in our house that buying those cheapy fans, you know, just these like $20 ones, because now we have 
I don't know, 20 fans in the house, <laughs> some ridiculous amount. And they're not like these high cost, high quality ones. They're just some che- little cheap guys. Yeah. And putting them all around the house has been so helpful too. Well, I bought a used um, portable air conditioner from friends of the family because they bought, they had air conditioning installed. They were lucky enough to be able to do that. And so I said, I'll take one of yours because I knew these were good. They had bought really good ones a couple of years back. And so I put it in the family room and I essentially make it blow right on me while I'm watching TV. (laughs) So fortunately, I've been (laughs) home on my own. Yeah. And I just like turn it on. I'm like, I'm going to sit right here. I get freezing cold, but I'm just going to blow it right on me the entire time I'm watching TV. It's not one of those ones that you install on the window? No, no, not one of those. It has wheels on it. I can wheel it everywhere. But I just wanted to, you know, look at right at me. Just have that cold air coming. And I just realized it's been off the last couple of days. I'm going to have to turn it back on later this week. Everybody has a different way of dealing with it. Yeah, there was a day where it was was one day in particular where it got really hot. Really, It was really bad. And our children, we knew we're not going to be able to sleep well through the night. And of course, they were up so many times. They couldn't get comfortable. And a listener had actually suggested that we sleep with wet bed sheets. And I thought that is, I thought that is wild and also potentially disgusting. And I did it and it was incredible. I slept (laughs) like a babe. Our listeners know. <laughs> they know. So like just slightly damp wet sheets, like not, yeah. it's not fully dry. So you just take them on, they're kind of still damp. Yep. And it worked a charm. Like it was, you know, I maybe uncomfortable this. for the first couple of minutes and then you're fully asleep. And yeah, you're you're like that TV commercial, sheets. like the hot sleeper, right? Where you need the cooling mattress. <laughs> yeah. and the, hey, who does not? So yeah, we're asking you that today. What adjustments have you made? Look at Raj, you climbing up on the roof, putting cardboard on the skylights. What adjustments <laughs> have you made to cope with the heat at your house? Uh, what are you doing? How many fans do you have now? Oh, how many portable air conditioners do you have? Let me know. Send me at cknw.com. And we're also this morning talking about working from home. Because Raji, this is what you do. You've never actually... Mm-hmm. I mean, you joined us during the pandemic. You've never actually worked from here, from the building, from the office. Yeah, that's right. I would say that working from home, there's like two ways you got to look at it. Because there are some places in the world right now where they are still in lockdown. So working from home during lockdown, uh, which I didn't have a chance of doing with CKNW, I was still employed elsewhere. And during that period, I can tell you was something awful. (laughs) Working from home during lockdown with kids was impossible, but um, working from home outside of that, just like during the pandemic, I have found is surprisingly really great for me. And yeah, I say surprisingly because I am marginally a type A kind of person. And oh, I'm sorry. I Did like- you say marginally? <laughs> slightly, <laughs> slightly cuspy on the, on the no. border there. <laughs> And I thought for sure I need to be in the studio. I need to see that green light go on. I need to see my colleagues. And I was disappointed that I didn't get to be in the office with you guys. But then, you know, as we finally got to meet about a month ago in person, our team, uh, you know, I felt like I just already knew you guys. It was enough to just be on air with you. It's enough oh, that we oh, so email like, all the time. Oh, I'm sorry. Once you met us in person, you were like, I was yeah, over you know what? I'm okay working <laughs> from home. So did we do something? Did we say something? I, I would- adore working with you guys, but there is something that comes with being in the office and time management. And because I'm a social butterfly, I realized that especially in a newsroom, one spends so much time, or at least I did, socializing. 
I used to social, I would hear somebody say something interesting about a story and I would turn around acting like it was for me. Like it was all for me. You wanted to jump in. walk over and, oh yeah, got to jump in. And then also I was prone to booking too many meetings. I was even the one responsible for booking too many meetings in person when I was in the office. Um, Not again, not at CKNW, but elsewhere. And so these are things that I had no idea I was doing. um, And I had no idea how poor my time management was until I was working from home. And this Angus Reid poll that you uh, brought up that's come out actually supports that. Uh, The survey supports this idea that people who are working from home are often actually more efficiently working than they would in the office without any of those interruptions. And that is me for sure. When I go into my studio office at home and I shut the door, my kids know they absolutely cannot come in. There's um, no interruptions. Hmm. Now, I know that that's a really privileged situation. A lot of people's children are a little bit younger than that and absolutely will not listen. <laughs> no, no, no. My, my children are much older than that. I couldn't trust them as well to oh. listen. So that's why I come <laughs> into work every day. So you're one of those people. I think it was the 25% of the Canadian workforce that said, I am more productive from home and I want to work from home. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this came as a total surprise to me. And then that uh, study also suggested that a lot of people, if they were like really forced to come back, if it was a matter of this is your job, it's on the line, come back to work or you're losing your job. um, A lot of people said, uh, yeah, well, fine. That's fine. I'll look for something else. And I'm not surprised to hear that because just anecdotally from talking to a lot of my friends and people who are in various stages of their career, some who are professionals, some who uh, you know, work in the entertainment industry or retail, just all over the place. I have heard this sentiment echoed so much by them really? that, yeah, that once they would get word that they had to come back, that they were going to seek employment elsewhere. I mean, I'd love to hear from somebody like that. If they're, if yeah. you're willing to quit because your boss won't let you work from home or you're just not getting the situation that you want, let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Whenever you hear about a gang-related incident, a shooting, car set on fire, something like that, you must wonder, as I do, what's really going on, right? What is the story behind having that happen in your community? Is there a fight going on? Is there what? What is the story? Well, there is a story that kind of lays all that out for you. Check it out in the Vancouver Sun. You can go to VancouverSun.com. And it is, of course, crime reporter Kim Bolin who has put those pieces together. And she joins us now detailing the link between some houses that have been set on fire recently and a couple of murders in the downtown east side. Kim, thanks for being back with us. My pleasure. You must also, this is like, we're so curious about this too, right? That there's always a bigger picture, isn't there, going on from the incidents that we hear about? Yes, there certainly is. And I know for me, covering so much of the lower mainland gang conflict, as we call it in recent years, you're always looking at these cases that happen in Surrey or Richmond or South Vancouver, you know, or Coquitlam. And, you know, I don't necessarily put the same kind of scrutiny sadly, on murders in the downtown east side because, you know, it is a very marginalized neighborhood. There's traditionally been a lot of violence down there. So when I, you know, sort of was hearing things about some of the recent murders that had links to the downtown east side, I decided to take a closer look. And, you know, I found out that, you know, the same gangs that are creating violence in a broader way are certainly targeting people in the downtown east side. And some of those people directly connected to those bigger gangs 
are the ones that have been targeted in recent murders. What I found fascinating about your piece was how it lays out that because of the kind of the drug industry in the downtown east side, it makes it a very lucrative place for gangs to still, in this day and age, fight over and try to profit from. Yes, it certainly does. And it's lucrative because there are a lot of drug users down there. There are a lot of vulnerable people down there, a lot of money to be made down there. But it's also the downtown east side's proximity to sort of the party part of downtown, you know, Granville Strip. People are going down there. So the dealers want to be set up down there so that they can sell drugs not only to the users, many of whom are very poor and very vulnerable, but also to the partiers who are coming into the downtown area and want access to drugs as well. So these recent cases then that you kind of linked together, it was a couple of murders on the downtown east side and a house fire? Well, actually, one of the murders, the victim was found in Langley on July 21st, Christopher Roy. Uh, he had been living in this house at 541 Prior Street, uh, that was a bit of a mess, was like the whole front yard was filled with junk even prior to it burning. Uh, and then another man who was killed in one of the SROs, the London Hotel, Mike Bailey, uh, on, on July 20th, uh, he was shot to death in a common room there at 5 a.m. He had been living in that same house on Prior Street. So a lot of people involved in the drug trade connected to that house. One of them ends up dead, shot to death in an SRO. The other one ends up killed and in a burnt truck in Langley, all within a few days. Uh, so it was pretty interesting for me to make those links. Obviously, police are also making those links. Uh, and in the case of Christopher Roy, he's someone with uh, fairly deep gang roots and deep roots to the drug trade in the downtown east side. And are things intensifying in the downtown east side? You mentioned how in SROs, they're dealing more and more with a gun problem. Yeah, I, I think, you know, traditionally when you hear of a murder in that area, it's, you know, maybe people that got into an altercation and there's a stabbing or a fight uh, where someone's hit their head and, and died. Uh, but in fact, a lot of the more recent murders are uh, involving firearms. A lot of the firearms are, you know, they're ending up inside the hotels. A lot of the gang members at the lower level who are sent down there to sort of set up shop, they'll befriend people in the SROs. And sometimes, you know, maybe those people feel intimidated. Sometimes maybe they're offered drugs that they desperately need, you know, or sometimes they legitimately think this person's like, you know, their friend and ally, and they're kind of moving in through tenants of some of these buildings. They set up shop. Um, and, of course, it's a terrible situation for the tenants. It's a terrible situation for staff members who are increasingly seeing people pull out firearms, you know, during some of these altercations, which is what happened with, you know, Mike Bailey, the fellow who died at the London. Uh, you know, so it's terrifying for many people who are living and working down there. And are the gang loyalties, do you think, being reinforced when we see things like this happen? I know that in one of the cases that you mentioned, uh, that person had recently switched gang loyalties. Well, yeah, Christopher Roy, according to some people I spoke to, had, he ties to the um, Wolfpack gang for a, quite a period of time. But apparently, while he was recently serving a sentence for drug trafficking, he sort of realigned with the Red Scorpions, and the, those groups are in conflict. So, you know, whether that was directly linked to why he died, the fact that he had switched, whether it was specifically because he came out of jail, 
was trying to retake his area where he sold drugs and someone else has taken it over. Uh, so that, you know, potentially could have been a motive that led to his death um, or whether it was something else. You know, we don't know for mm-hmm. sure. But certainly the gangs that are, you know, at war and part of this bigger conflict that we've written so much about with the public shootings at malls and airports are the same people involved in the violence often in the downtown east side. Is there any sense, Kim, that is the pie shrinking for them? Like, is it is it because they're fighting over more and more territory because with the legalization of cannabis, has, have things changed for these gangs? I mean, they are amazing in how they evolve. Uh, long before cannabis was legalized, you know, the, the writing was on the wall and many of the gangs were, you know, they had less reliance on that for you know, their profits, right? And they moved into synthetic drugs and manufacturing pills and all the rest of it, right? So, you know, they're, they're very good at changing to adapt to what's happening in the marketplace. However, without a doubt, you know, the, the pandemic has changed everyone's lives and it's impacted the gangs as well. And uh, we know that, you know, there, there was some issue with product coming into the country, at least for a while, uh, and, you know, so that means the price goes up for, you know, at the kilo level and, uh, you know, definitely people are ripping each other off because, you know, they hear somebody's got a stash of drugs and they want to sell sell that themselves. So some of the violence comes from those types of ripoffs. Um, you know, without a doubt, they, there's, you know, they've been struggling like everyone else, if you will, but I think things are relatively normal and stable, and that a lot of the violence is related to traditional conflicts as well, right. and the ability to make money. They don't want to make more money, always. Always, right? That's what it comes yeah. down to. Kim, thank you for so sure. much for that this morning. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate your time. Kim Boland's latest piece, you can read it in the Vancouver Sun. It's vancouversun.com, where she essentially puts all the puzzle pieces together, linking some recent gang-related incidents in the Lower Mainland and really what was going on behind it. Uh, So check out her piece in the Vancouver This is Mornings with Simi. There are still almost 300 wildfires burning in this province, despite the cooler weather we had on the weekend. But here's the thing, more wind and more hot weather in the forecast over the next few days. So is that situation going to get worse? Well, to get a better sense of the situation this morning, we're checking in with Shaley Stearns, who's the BC Wildfire Service Fire Information Officer. Shaley, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Simi. Well, I wouldn't say this is calm right now, but it's a little bit calmer than it was, say, a week ago. But is this, are you just kind of bracing yourself for later this week? Yeah, I mean, those rains that we saw over the weekend in some areas definitely helped kind of settle the activity that we're seeing. But like you said, there is more, like, higher temperatures in the forecast. So it's definitely something to be vigilant about for sure. So where are the problem areas right now? Well, right now, I mean, we have 16 wildfires of note in the Kamloops Fire Centre, so that's a good awareness to have, and those are some significant fires with some significant fire activity that we're seeing. The White Rock Lake Fire um, is definitely one of our largest fires right now, hectare-wise, followed by Sparks Lake. Um, And then we also have the July Mountain Fire, which is definitely one of note because it's right on Highway 5 there. And, you know, you mentioned the Sparks Lake one and the White Rock Lake one. Like Those have been burning for some time, and we don't seem to be making any progress against them, do we? 
Well, these are quite large fires, so there's definitely multiple fronts to be fighting on. And I mean, the rain, definitely the precipitation that we saw definitely helped decrease that activity that we're seeing. But it would take a significant precipitation event event to really make an impact on that. So right now, crews are definitely working to establish those guards and control lines that could help put this firing to control. Yeah, and what are you anticipating with the hot weather in the forecast for this week? Yeah, well, with the hot weather, we can definitely see an increase in fire activity come up. So that means that it just means it could be burning burning more aggressively. And with the wind, it means the situation could be changing instantaneously. So it's really important for people to remember to be extremely vigilant right now with fire activity and to be extremely cautious if you are out in the backcountry or at wreck sites or anything like that. Because if there's another human-caused wildfire, I mean, those are entirely preventable, right? And is that what you've seen quite a bit of this summer? There's definitely been various degrees and some fires are undetermined for sure, but it's just a reminder to people that we can entirely prevent those fires and then tackle those natural starts that come up. Okay. So again, what about the evacuation alert situation, Shaley? Because I know I I had some emails from people talking about, oh, they were relieved because the evacuation alert was rescinded for them, but should they not be waiting that perhaps things might be a concern again coming up in the days ahead? Well, I mean, it definitely was nice to see some of those alerts rescinded due to the precipitation that we saw, or sorry, orders rescinded as well um, for some fires. But it is important for people to know that we're still incredibly dry in all areas of the interior. So it's good for people to be aware of that and the increased with the temperatures that we're going to be seeing that we're going to remain quite dry and the precipitation that we had. It was a good break, but it didn't make a significant impact long term. So it's just good to remain vigilant and alert. It is. All right, Shaley, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's Shaley Stearns, BC Wildfire Service Fire Information Officer. And she said, listen, what it's going to take to change things right now is a what they call significant precipitation event. We haven't had that in months. Even the little bit of rain that we had on the weekend is not what they call a significant precipitation event that would really put a damper on these very large fires. So the three in particular that are still causing a concern, the White Rock Lake Fire, the Sparks Lake Fire, and the July Mountain Fire. The July Mountain Fire is the one that jumped the Coquihalla on Thursday night and then kind of got beaten back a little bit with the rain on the weekend. But again, got dry conditions, very hot conditions in the forecast heading into the weekend here. So it remains a huge concern. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it was not the news that any of us wanted to hear first thing on a Monday morning. The United Nations Panel on Climate Change dropped its most comprehensive assessment of climate change yet. They looked at 14,000 papers and studies on this. And as you've heard, the news was not good. Temperatures will keep rising. Weather is getting more extreme. Arctic summers could soon be absolutely free of ice. And most importantly, we are running out of time to mitigate this in any way. Here in BC, we can't help but notice all of that this year, right? Can we? This weather, this recent heat wave we're talking about, horrible and early wildfire season, and this third extreme heat wave that we have been talking about this morning, which has not happened in recent memory. So let's talk more about all of this. Joining us now is Mike Flanagan, professor with the Department of Renewable Resources at the University of Alberta, right in the middle of all the wildfire situation that we've been talking about. Have you been seeing that evidence around you? I'm actually in the process of moving, so I have avoided most of the smoke and fire thus far, though I've been watching the situation closely. Right. So given what we're seeing this summer, did that the report that came out yesterday, did any of that surprise you? 
No, it's not a surprise at all. Um, for years, you know, we've been saying urgent action is needed now, and uh, it's fallen mostly on deaf ears. Um, things are changing, but are they changing fast enough? And that's my real concern. And maybe I'll take a second to explain, you know, what is all this warming about? You know, simply put, the Earth is 6,000 degrees. It emits most of its energy in short wavelengths that the atmosphere is transparent to, so that the energy gets through to their surface mostly. The Earth is about 300 degrees Kelvin or about 15 degrees Celsius. It emits most of its energy as long waves, and our, much of our atmosphere is opaque. That means it won't allow it to go out and it traps the heat. So it's like having an extra blanket on your bed during a cold winter's night. It keeps the heat in. How much? You know, those are good questions. But, you know, this is what's going. And there's actually a natural greenhouse effect because there's always been uh, carbon dioxide and water vapor. Those are two key greenhouse gases. And without them, we'd be about 30 degrees colder than what we are. So we're kind of a Goldilocks planet. Mars is too cold. Venus is too hot. Earth is just right. Well, it seems like it was just right, but it's really coming home to us, I think, here in BC this summer, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that heat wave in the end of June, and we got in Alberta where I was, it was extraordinary. And, you know, we did some calculations that's like a one in a thousand year event, or some people said it was virtually impossible without human caused climate change. So we've already warmed about a degree, you know, in the last 50 years or pre-industrial, which is 1850 to 1900. And we're going to continue to warm, even if we stop emitting greenhouse gases today, because there's lags in our climate system. Our ocean absorbs heat and then releases it slowly, sometimes up to over a thousand years. So we're going to continue to warm. Ocean levels are going to continue to rise. And we're going to see drought, extreme heat, floods, fire, Yes, it, it sounds like a, a it disaster does. movie. It that's does. What we're living. That does. It's exactly what it sounds like. One of the things they mentioned was Arctic summers could soon be free of ice. What are the repercussions of that? Enormous. Okay. So it's something called albedo. That's just a word for reflectivity. So things like snow and ice balance most of the energy back into space. It's very reflective, white surfaces. Just think of your car. If you have a black interior, you cook. A white interior, much cooler. Um, so if it goes from snow to water, which is blue, ocean, it absorbs most of that heat um, instead of reflecting it back to space. So it's going to change our climate system completely and disrupt the jet stream, which really determines the day-to-day weather, where the high pressures go, where the low pressures go. So if you think the weather is wacky or crazy, it's only going to get crazier. And, you know, and this is the thing that you know, scares me is that, you know, it's a pretty scary painting we're pit, you know, yes. picture we're painting right now. It could be much worse. We could be caught with surprises that you know catch us completely off guard because the models they use are are good and they're better than the old models, right? But they're not perfect. Okay, so there could be some really nasty surprises coming. But here's and, uh, here's what I wonder, Mike, about that though. Will the nasty surprises jolt us into action? Because I feel like when it happens gradually, we have a tendency, and this is human nature, to adjust, right? To get used to it. But do we need to have that jolt to show us this is what is happening? You know, I think we're on the same page here. Human behavior, sometimes we need a bloody nose. Well, we've had bloody noses. Let's let's actually do something now. And, you know, Canada's made lots of promises. Um 
and we have our track records really poor at keeping them with respect to, you know, greenhouse gases. We really have to do more and we have to do better. And it's not just governments. It's people. It's, you know, it's, well, it's all level of governments, local, provincial, federal, international agreements. But it's also people, industry. We've we got to wean ourselves off the coal, coal oil and gas off these fossil fuels and go to renewables. There's as, a as soon there's a possible. big climate change panel coming up this fall at, in Glasgow. Right. Uh, I know that in, even the UK government is putting a lot of focus on that. Do you think this report is a wake-up call that we could see some something meaningful come out of that? I hope so. And, you know... You know, the United States has changed course, which is great. And by changing course, you know, I often think of an ocean liner. You know, it, there's an iceberg coming, you know, in, in front of us. And the sooner we start turning, the, the more flexibility we have. The later we have, you know, we, we leave it, the less flexibility, more like we are to hit that iceberg. But there's countries like Australia that are just behaving very poorly and ignoring everything. But hopefully the other players will come to the table and make meaningful changes and agreements. All right. Well, Mike, thank you very much for your time this morning. My pleasure, Sammy. That's Mike Flanagan, professor at Thompson Rivers University, talking about the United Nations Climate Panel Report. came out yesterday. And yeah, it was scary. It was depressing. I know I heard that word used a lot too. Uh, but all eyes are going to be on what is going to be done about this. We've got this climate panel happening in November, I think it is, in Glasgow. The UK government, by the way, is, and this is the government of Boris Johnson, a conservative prime minister, is completely kind of revamping their agenda to deal with with the climate crisis, and they are going to be making some big presentations and some big proposals at that particular conference too. So we'll see. Is that enough? We're seeing it here in BC. This the heat wave that we've got coming up that really kind of gets going Thursday, Friday, hottest days again. Uh, that's the third one that we've had this summer. That is unprecedented. We haven't had three extreme heat events like this that require a special weather statement from Environment Canada in the summertime, uh, in the records. We haven't found that yet. There's going to be a lot of talk about that. This is Mornings with Simi. A little something different, something fun to talk to our Raji Sohal about this morning. Raji, I can't wait to hear your answer on this. <laughs> We're talking about this controversial already. I mean, it just came out, this news <laughs> right. uh, out of the UK that one in eight women have over 100 pairs of shoes in their closet. Yes, this isn't, this, that's a, that's British women. This British was women. research commissioned for shoeaholics.com. Um, <laughs> and they found that, yes, that one in eight British women says that they have more than 100 pairs of shoes. How is that possible? So then I said to you, well, how many pairs of shoes do you have? And you refused to answer the question. I'm still blushing over here, actually, because um, I bet you that number of one in eight is actually higher. I think a lot of women will not fess up and admit how many shoes they have. So I was doing the math. I'm going to be honest here. I think I probably have about 30. Well, I don't think that's very much. I think it is. I think it's gross. There's something disgusting about it because, Simi, I don't wear those 30 pairs. 
I mean, some of them are five inch heels. And I discovered over the pandemic that I'm not going to wear heels anymore. I am done (laughs) with heels. That would explain why the number one selling shoe that the sales increased by 50% during the pandemic is the sneaker, the running shoe. Which leads me to believe that we're supposed to be counting our sneakers and running shoes in this. Wait a minute, you weren't? not do. Oh, no. But that's still your shoes, Raji. You can't say it's outside of the category. If you put it on your feet, those are your shoes. Mm, interesting technicality. Count, count so again. I actually, count again. Yeah, I bought a lot of runners this pandemic because I was going for a lot more walks. I was going for a lot more trail runs. So I bought running shoes probably for more than I would have before the pandemic. You know, ones that were like waterproof and made of Gore-Tex and that kind of thing. These technical ones are so pricey. I Uh bought several pairs of running shoes. I would say like maybe I bought five or six pairs probably. Okay. Well, you're the same as the people in this survey then because 49% of the people they surveyed bought six or more pairs of shoes over the past 12 months. Mm, makes sense. Did you catch this part of the article that the heel height of the heels that women are buying has, is growing right now? No, increasing I don't accept from that. Three to four inches. Have we learned nothing over this no. pandemic? I bought <laughs> one no pair. I bought that. one pair of shoes over the past year. One. Wow. And it was a pair of Keds because they were super comfortable. And that was it. Oh, See, I didn't even know we should count things like that. Hang on, my number's starting to climb here. <laughs> I'm not a shoe person. I'm a notorious not a shoe person. I pr- even though I'm not a shoe person, I have about 20 pairs of shoes. That is winter boots, rain boots, you know, two pairs of running shoes, you know, a couple pairs. I'm including flip-flops. I'm, I'm including wow. You didn't include I'm so flip-flops. So jealous right now. No, I didn't. I'm so jealous right now. You, you essentially I thought I was lied. A practical person. Yeah, <laughs> no. I guess I have been lying. If there was like you, an accountant yeah. to look at just my shoes, they would be like, "No, we're reporting you. We can't take yeah. you in as a client." Yeah, I think that Canadians in general are practical, but then Vancouverites usually take it a step further. We're more practical than I think the rest of the country. But then when I see friends' Instagram pages, I see them like trying not to repeat outfits on posts. Or I'll see them trying not to repeat shoes. And then I'm thinking, whoa, how many shoes do they have? So then maybe people here also, maybe one in eight women here also have over 100 pairs of shoes in their closet. But where are they storing these, Simi? In Vancouver, we have to be so careful with our space, our closet space. People find room. People find room. Uh, Here's the thing. I am less of a shoe person than my husband is. He actually owns more pairs of shoes than I do. No. Yes. What does. what does he do with these shoes? Get he out of just town. loves them. He loves wearing like he'll have his regular like, you know, he's got running shoes. He's got his boots for work. He's got he's a big outdoors guy. So he's got a lot of different outdoorsy shoes, fishing boots and all you name it. Um, I'm going to be counting like his fishing gear. And then he's got he loves fancy shoes. Like if we're on vacation, oh. he loves buying fancy shoes. So he has more pairs of shoes than I do. So they're not all getting rotated. He's not wearing all of them. He tries, but I, every once in a while I encourage him to go dig down and find a nice pair of shoes to wear. And then he'll wear them like, oh, I forgot I had these. That's a classic, right? Okay. So if you are not buying shoes, what are you buying? Books. Mm. I'm buying books. Okay. Like if you saw my book collection, you'd be like, oh, that's where she spends oh, all her money. Gosh, you are feeling smug books. this morning because <laughs> I 
and I am jealous because I have not spent that much on books. You know, I actually, I'm not, I have no shame in admitting this. We have so few books for, I mean, not children's books, but we have so few books that we keep around because if I really enjoy a book, I pass it along. I don't like reading something a second time. So I'll read it once and then there it goes out the door. Hmm. Okay. I have a different set of rules, but I, I know that you distracted from the conversation, but I want to know factoring, right? I'm a mother (laughs) factoring in your flip flops, your sneakers, every single item that goes on your feet, Raji. Now tell me how many you have. Okay. What about my wedding shoes? I just said all of them. If you own them and they go on your feet, how many pairs do you have? 60. You don't sound sure about that. I feel like it could be higher. So you're telling me that there was, you gave us a number of 30 and you really lowballed it. I'm coming over to your house. I'm going to count these for myself. I don't believe it. How many, Is there an award for buyer's remorse? Oh, no. How many pairs of shoes do you think you have in your closet? Raji got it completely wrong for her own closet. And according to the shoeaholics.com website, one in eight British women anyway are saying they have more than 100 pairs of shoes. What about you? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we saw the pictures yesterday. We talked a lot about it, too. It was the lineup of Americans waiting to cross the border for non-essential travel into Canada. Now, the tourism hospitality industry has been, has been waiting for a day like this, right? Hoping that this will be the boost to tourism. We talked to Walt Judas yesterday, head of the BC Tourism Association, where he essentially said, like, yes, it's great that we are all vacationing in our own backyard, but it's the international tourists who really spend the money when they get here. So where's everybody staying? They're arriving here. Are they staying in local hotels? Is there enough staff to keep those hotels open too? So joining us now is the president and CEO of the BC Hotel Association, Ingrid Jarrett. Good morning, Ingrid. Good morning, Simi. So what are things looking like at our local hotels here? Are bookings up? Well, certainly not due to the U.S. traveler. We're not seeing, uh, you know, an uptick in that. Uh, we've got some strong occupancy in specific resort areas around the province. But from uh, all of the intel we can muster right now about the U.S. border opening, really it's about friends and family that have not been able to come uh, back to Canada uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, so we're not—we're certainly not seeing a, a you know a large demand increase. Um, but you know the other the other thing that's occurring with uh, the fires and different emergencies around the province is we're seeing significant cancellations, especially in the central Okanagan area, where there is once again a recommendation for non-essential travel. So certainly there's been a significant impact from a cancellation perspective. Do you think this might change uh, in terms of, you know, American visitors or international visitors as kind of the weeks pick up here that perhaps the initial travel was to see friends and family and maybe the tourists will start coming? Well, we certainly are hopeful. You know, we have strong relationships and BC uh, is known in the U.S. as one of the most desirable destinations. I think there will be time while people get used to the, uh, you know, the process of the testing and crossing the border. Uh, We're really encouraging uh, the messaging to know before you go, especially given that some destinations uh, have seen very strong demand from BC residents. 
And so you don't really want to arrive somewhere where you're not able to get a reservation. So book ahead, book directly with the hotel so that you can find out uh, what the circumstances are in those areas. Destination BC has a really great uh, page, Know Before You Go, so we're encouraging that. And, um, you know, we're really hopeful that the U.S. demand will support the remainder of the summer. It's an extremely challenging time with a very uh, serious workforce shortage. And many areas of the province actually are known for international travelers, not just U.S. travelers. And those areas uh, continue to be impacted with very low occupancies. Yeah, that's. I was going to ask you about the labor shortage, actually. So even if you had people, is that more like the, the, the industry can handle right now, given that it's hard to find people? Well, it's, it's very challenging. Uh, many of uh, our workforce has been, you know, repurposed is probably not the most eloquent word to use, but they've been moved into manning the vaccination clinics, long-term care, supporting the... Uh, public need for medical services, and there's so many uh, skills that are within hospitality and tourism that can be moved into other industries, and certainly after 18 months of being laid off or or shut down, uh, you know, people's livelihoods are are really important to make sure that they can go and uh, work. So we have lost a significant amount of our workforce, and we also went into the pandemic with a serious shortfall of workers. So um, there, this is a big job for us, and it's not a short-term fix. Uh, we are asking to people to be patient and be kind. There will be many restrictions on operating hours in our restaurants, for example. Uh, there will be less people able to service. So um, there are lots of hotels that are not be—they're not able to provide the, the service levels that we would have been able to previously, just simply because there there are not enough people. Many hotels are having to cap their occupancies because they just do not have enough people to clean the rooms. Right. So you may have 100 rooms, but you're only going to operate as though 50 of them are open. Exactly. Exactly. And that's really heartbreaking when we've been through, you know, these 18 months have been critically uh, difficult. You know, no relief on fixed costs for us from a property tax uh, or energy costs or, you know, that kind of thing. So, Operating costs remain very high, and revenues are significantly hindered uh, by the workforce shortage. Are, is the industry adapting then, Ingrid? We keep hearing about things like, well, customers are going to have to get used to not having daily housekeeping or not having all the rooms open, prices being higher. Are those adaptations that the industry is now doing? Yeah, you know, w- within the um, the pandemic, certainly one of the one of the first restrictions was that there wouldn't be housekeepers coming into a room during the stay. And you know, it's interesting. Some people prefer not to have people coming and going from their room while they're there. And so there will be many properties that actually will not be offering overnight housekeeping or stayover service or. You know, when you turn down and put a chocolate on your pillow, that kind of thing. And that really is because we simply don't have enough people to be doing those extra services. But the cleaning, the cleanliness, the safety, the safety plans, all that kind of thing are, are well in place. So it's not a matter of, of it not being clean, but it's just a matter of those additional services may in fact not be offered 
in some properties that are not able to deliver them. So we have to kind of lower our standards, do you think, for the next year or two while the industry settles, gets gets back into this new situation? Yeah, I, I don't think the standards lowering, I think, it, because I think the standards are all there, and that certainly is a commitment of, of every operation. But I think it's the additional touches. And, and you may find that even within a food and beverage operation, that there is a different system, you know, that you don't have, you know, you may have to be in a hotel where you order your food and it's delivered to your room, or you may have to pick it up if they don't have any servers. But they're doing everything they can to be agile and provide that service that they would have historically. You may find, for example, service on a pool deck in a resort. Maybe that you have to, you know, sort of self-serve versus be served. Um, and then again, in the housekeeping service, it's, uh, it's highly likely that there will be no stayover service in, uh, in most properties in the province. And again, that is simply because we do not have enough people to provide those services. What is the industry doing then to attract more people? Well, the shortage of the workforce is, it comes from many avenues. First and foremost, we don't have our foreign workers, uh, which we normally would have had thousands. International students have not been here for, uh, you know, the last 18 months. We have thousands of international work, uh, uh, students that are, are at our universities that actively uh, work within the hospitality and tourism industry. Working holiday visas, we would have thousands of those, and those are young people who would come to Canada for one or two years, very often with very great skills and, and training in hospitality. So we don't have any of those workers either. We also have many people that remain having to work at home because of changes within sort of businesses reopening or not and people working from home. So very often uh, we need to have somebody look at home looking after our children. Um, you know, uh, travelers from across the country, With uh, we're certainly not seeing the number of Canadians coming to British Columbia to work in the summer. And um, we are working with uh, HR, Tourism HR Canada, our partners at GoToHR, Kristen, her team. And, you know, each of these avenues for workforce and students, um, it's really important that we address each one of them because um, that we, we just cannot uh, continue. People are burnt out. You know, they've been, mm-hmm. <laughs> they've been working, you know, day and night uh, trying to do everything they can to provide the service. And it gets down to the point where, uh, we just really need more people to enter our industry. It's a great industry. I love it. It's fun. It's hard work, but it's very rewarding. And we just need a real focus on growing our workforce. Ingrid, thank you so much for your time this morning. Timmy, thank you so much. Take care. You too. That's Ingrid Jarrett, President and CEO of the BC Hotel Association, talking about the numerous challenges that industry is facing right now. Uh, And you know what? Not yet seeing any kind of a bump with the border open to Americans at this point, but we'll keep an eye on it if you want to weigh in. Simi at cknw.com.